Welcome to The Build Up. I'm Kirk Pinhop. And I'm Arielle Cass. We cover real estate for Cranes Detroit Business. Together, we're launching this podcast to give you the inside scoop on commercial real estate. We'll be bringing in experts from across the industry to offer their perspectives on the biggest issues they face today and what challenges they expect for the future. This is The Build Up. Today's guest is Rainey Hamilton Jr., the president, owner, and co-founder of architecture firm Hamilton Anderson Associates. Rainey was born, raised, and educated in Detroit and built his business here in the city. He's a graduate of Cass Tech and the University of Detroit Mercy. His firm, started in 1992, is one of the largest African-American-owned architectural firms in the United States. Rainey focuses on sustainable architecture and planning projects, and he's remained committed to building up his hometown and preserving its history. His recent projects include the Hudson's Tower site, the Hamilton Midtown Detroit Apartments, and the Motown Museum expansion. Rainey, thanks for joining us on The Build-Up. Sure, thank you both for having me. It's good to be here. As we just mentioned, you know, your company has been working on a lot of very large sort of um, efforts around around town. Talk a little bit about what's been what's been keeping you busy and what we should expect from your company going forward. Wow, that's a that's a mouthful, Kirk. It's been um, it's been a, a joy of late to to be involved in so many projects um, locally and uh, something about this current time, this this environment has has brought a tremendous uptick in the amount of projects and opportunities that are coming our way. Uh, as you mentioned, we're on the, the Hudson's project, which has been, it's been a multi-year effort uh, to design and, and document the podium as well as the tower that's now under construction. We can see it over the horizon now with the skyline. Uh, so we're definitely glad to see that emerging, but um, that's just one piece of the puzzle that we need in Detroit to continue the upward growth of our city. Pretty soon that project will be old enough to buy a beer. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so several years ago, you and a number of other entrepreneurs and business owners were involved in um, sort of a rollout of a, I think it was $50 million plus of development and redevelopment in the what's known as the Harmony Park area. Um, on sort of like the eastern edge of downtown. I'm wondering where that stands. I know that Basmajian is uh, getting close to being done with his building that has the uh, the Van Gogh exhibit. Um, I think the cigar shop is done, but I think there's still some work left to do. And and you were obviously involved in in, in the overall broader vision. What, what's the status of all that stuff? Right. The, the Harmony Club is actually opening, uh, did open last weekend with the Van Gogh exhibit. So we're really tickled. I think there's a VIP celebration tomorrow evening. So I'm looking forward mm -hmm. to attending that. So um, that's nearing completion. And you're right, Kirk, we did purchase the building that we're in, uh, 1435 Randolph, which was the former home for the Detroit Seafood Market on the ground floor. Mm -hmm. And the three floors of office space we've occupied now for 28 years. Um, so we are, again, it's been, a, it's been a little bit of a long haul to get here. Uh, we, we, we say that we had a couple of tsunamis along the way, uh, tsunami in terms of uh, working with the city to convince them that we should not build an addition to this property at this time. I'm glad we did not do that. So after they realized that uh, our math work made sense, we were able to purchase the building and uh, we're waiting to close on a construction loan which should happen in the next several months. And then we'll start renovation of the office floors for Hamilton Anderson. And mm -hmm. then uh, as phase two, we'll look for a restaurant operator for the ground floor. 
so it's it's been a bit of a haul, especially with the first tsunami and then and then COVID and the delay and all of that. But we're we think we're nearing the finish line, so we can actually get the building renovated and we can update the heating and cooling system and lighting and so forth and make it home for Hamilton Anderson for the next several decades. What sort of uh, trends are you noticing in building and workspace design during the pandemic that you expect are going to sort of remain with us going forward? I'm seeing a lot of owners are rethinking what it means to offer workplace for staff members and employees. Initially, I thought there would be a, a huge transformation and a huge downsizing of the amount of space that a, a business might lease. I thought there would be a, a mad dash going back to building owners and landlords to downsize the size of their lease in terms of square footage. But that really hasn't happened to a great extent. There's been more adjustments in terms of um, maintaining about the same amount of space, but allowing people to spread out, um, allowing folks to work from home and spend some time in the office during the course of a, of a business week. So I'm, I'm glad that that hasn't happened because we have such a tremendous amount of, of office space in the downtown area. Um, but it's good to see that people are getting back to the office. And I think for, for industries like architecture, interior design, landscape architecture, um, we're finding that there, there's magic to be at the table to be able to sketch and draw across the table from your partners or a client. There's something magic about that. So the, the notion of working from home full time for design professionals really does not work, in my opinion. So I'm, I'm definitely seeing a, a more urgent need of our staff members to come back into the office space uh, to collaborate with other uh, coworkers. Um, but overall, I think that um, I'm hoping that the office market in the downtown CBD area continues to, to rebound. Might take us a year or two to get back to um, something higher than 80% occupancy, but I'm hoping that we will get back to working in person uh, with some uh, accommodations for working remotely because it, it does work. Architecture, like many other industries, including journalism, has been grappling with diversity, equity, and inclusion issues for some time now. What do you think can be done to recruit more non-white, non-male architects to the field? I think we have to continue doing what we're doing, which is to continue to expose youngsters to the field of architecture. And we do that through career days, uh, visiting historically black colleges and universities, uh, reaching out to public school uh, systems uh, to expose youngsters to the field of architecture. I think the um, National Organization of Minority Architects, NOMA, has a pipeline process, uh, a program where we try to uh, get youngsters involved in, in the design uh, professions uh, to expose them to what we do and to uh, allow them to uh, share in the fun of creating uh, and to um, hope that they will continue on the path and, and then ultimately become design professionals. So it, it, it's still a struggle. It, it, it's still a struggle. The, the industry overall is underrepresented. Uh, we've had clients that have challenged us on, uh, Rainey, I understand that you only hire white professionals and, and, and I want to come over and, and visit your office. And, and we, we bring them in and, and we, we show them the numbers, you know, of, of the 50,000 architects in the country that might be American Institute of Architects members, uh, one half of 1%, let's call it 1% of those are African-American. So if you do the math, it would be impossible uh, to have 
all 1% of those architects working in Michigan, working for Hamilton Anderson. So um, there, there have been strides in the number of women that are in the profession. That seems to be the largest growing sector, which I, I think is excellent. Uh, I would say probably 50% of our workforce at Hamilton Anderson is, is women. Um, but it, it, it's, it's still a struggle. And I think it's just based on the sheer numbers in the population that we have in, in the United States. And what's gained by having a diverse group of people designing urban spaces? And uh, how do you, how do you embrace inclusiveness and diversity in the work that you design? I think the um, the, the richness and the the fun of what we do is when we collaborate and we get diverse voices at the table. How boring could it be if everybody thought the same and brought the same experiences to the table? Uh, but to have a, a variety of, of culture, uh, talent, expertise, um, location of upbringing, um, to bring all that to the table creates a much richer environment. And, 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 and we build on that. Uh, as, as people share their backgrounds and their experiences, someone else shares something on top of that, you layer something on top of that, and you get something that's, that's very unique in terms of a design uh, approach or thought. Uh, so um, diversity of thought makes for a very rich working environment. It's, it's just good overall. It, it, we should be an inclusive, oh my God, in this environment that we live in politically, the divisiveness, you know, a, a house divided will fall. And we have to come together and work together. I mean, the, the United States is the melting pot of the world. At least we, we were bragging about that kind of a, a sentiment, but today it's very, very difficult. So I, I just, it, it's just, it's the right thing to do. And and we benefit from diversity at the table. It, it's just the right thing to do. Um, I know that you and Irene have spoken before about some concerns relative to local firms being tapped for work in the city versus out-of-state firms and um, concerns that you know maybe a lot of this work was going to companies out of New York or DC when we got a lot of local talent around here. Um, has that issue improved at all, or is it still is it still a concern in in, in your mind? It's still a concern. I, I think I think the dial has moved in the right direction on that point. Um, I, I think I remember Maurice Cox would say. Um, Nothing designed for me without me is co the correct path to go on. So I, I think that our leaders better understand now that there should be partnerships. While there is an abundance of talent in the city of Detroit that could design anything that's ever imagined, um, oftentimes there is benefit of having international thought at the table, but I, I definitely think that those partnerships should be brokered and insisted upon and, and made uh, for the betterment of, of all of us. Uh, I think it, it's smart to be able to cycle a Detroit dollar uh, within this community uh, a couple of times before it leaves, if it ever has to leave, that that's, the, that, that's good business. Have you, have you noticed an uptick in, in um, Hamilton Anderson's work in the, in the city in the last couple of years? Yeah, there's definitely been an uptick and, and uh, we feel very proud and, 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 and good that we are sought after. 
And when there is a, a major project that is on the horizon, we will get calls from all across the country. We'll get calls internationally and, and to um, offer to, you know, we're being asked to partner uh, with, those, with those entities. Um, and it's, it's happened of late. Uh, there's a project that's in the pipeline, and, and we've gotten calls, and um, we've had to say no, that, that we've already uh, joined with the firm uh, because they've talked to us six months ago, and we have an agreement to be exclusive. So it, it's, been, it's been good to be sought after. There are instances where, you know, where we're seeing RFPs, requests for proposals coming out weekly, on a weekly basis, sometimes multiple RFPs coming out from the city of Detroit for, for work. And, and we're having to, um, <laughs> I've had to learn how to say no. Um, my staff, they kick me virtually and say, Rainy, we, you know, we're at capacity or, or we, we say yes, but we can't start it today like you would like, but we could start it in June or, or July or August. Uh, so it is a very unique marketplace right now. How hard has it been for, for you to learn how to say no? It's been very hard. Um, there, there's a recreation center uh, that we did several years ago. We did phase one and phase two, and the city has now um, obtained the funds to do phase three, which is the addition of a gymnasium. And as much as I would like to, I would have liked to pursue that project, we've had to say no. Um, just because of the timing, uh, the immediate start, and the goal to have it designed as quickly as possible so we can move into construction, I've had to say no. So very, very difficult. Um, if there is a more relaxed schedule where it can start in a few months and the deadline isn't this year per se, uh, then we will definitely pursue those types of projects. I'm going to change directions a little bit. I understand sure. that you're a model train enthusiast. That's correct. And did you get your first train from your mom? Did I see that? I got my first train from my parents. From your um, parents. Dad set it up on Christmas Eve so that on Christmas Day, I was, I, was, I was forever hooked on model railroading. What was it about it? Uh, you know, I'm tempted to actually write a, um, a song or a poem in terms of what is the attraction to model railroading. I, I think it's the... The tracks lead to somewhere, and and where is that train going? What is the cargo that's being towed? If it's a freight train or passengers, where are they headed? The variety of paint schemes that you see on the cars—it's it, almost like some of the games, like Candy Crush. You know, people get addicted to Candy Crush because of the colors. Well, there's colors on the railroad cars that go by, and and uh, people that know me have have come to listen for the sound of the train whistle uh, that I hear every morning, every evening that's in the, the John R. area uh, along the old Grand Trunk line that's still active with both passenger and freight service. You hear those horns every time the locomotive crosses a, um, a street crossing. You know, it's two long blasts, a short one, then another long one as it crosses the, the road. So um, anything train, anything rail draws my attention. And it drew your attention enough that you had a hobby store open for a little while. Um, did you learn anything from one business that you were able to use in the other? Are there any connections to be made between retail and commercial real estate? I think the, the, the lesson learned coming from the retail endeavor is 
how to work with a wide variety of people. You never know who that customer is walking in the door. Their parents may say something and their desire and what they want, what they have interest in and what they buy could be something completely different. So the rule of the day is that you treat everybody as though you would want to be treated and treat them with great service. Despite the appearance, despite background, despite everything, you treat them with A1 service. So in our practice of architecture, we try to provide A1 service to our clients. So you're a native Detroiter. Um, you could have gone to New York or LA or Austin, Texas, or wherever it is that you wanted to go. Why, why was it important for you to stay here and, and, and work here? Um, growing up in Detroit, I came to know the, the layout of the city, like the back of my hand. My mother and father divorced when I was around 14. <clears throat> so I stayed with mom and did not want to go away to school. As I got out of high school, I did not want to leave her. And had been accepted at uh, U of Penn, Penn State, and Harvard to go to their schools of architecture. And the University of Detroit Mercy uh, leadership and dean made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. I received a scholarship and was able to teach. And in doing so, I could stay home and and be the man of the house with my mom. And, and that uh, that was good for me. And I'm glad I didn't leave because adding to that lifelong knowledge of Detroit just added to the, our ability to craft proper design solutions for any project that occurs in the city. What has it been like to see the changes in the city over the last number of years and in the neighborhood you grew up in as well? Yeah, the, the, the neighborhood I grew up in, it, it breaks my heart when I drive through it, uh, Roselawn and Joy Road area, because of the continued deterioration of the housing stock and, and the families. It, it just breaks my heart. But to see other areas flourish and turn around and, and grow is very satisfying. I, I just thought that in almost 40 years of practice that we would have had this all done by now. It just it's taken such a long time. Do, do you think your old neighborhood will, will get back to where it was? And if so, what, what needs to happen in order for that to take place? I think it will get back, Kirk. I just think it's going to take some time. Um, as I said, it's taken you know three or four decades to get to the point where we are now. Um, being a lifelong Detroiter, it, it's just going to take time. It, it's not an overnight process. It takes, it takes, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to, to build projects in the city of Detroit for a number of reasons. Um, um, every project, every development project typically has a financial gap uh, just because the, the rents are lower here in the city than they might be in other either surrounding suburban areas. Uh, I often say if you put a brick in place in Detroit or put a brick in place in Birmingham, in Detroit I can get $22, $25 a square foot. In Birmingham I can get $35 or $40 a square foot. So um, big disparity in terms of rental rates and what can be sustained in, in the city of Detroit in terms of what can be developed. Um, the pandemic and the um, um, labor shortages, material shortages, supply chain, um, problems that we've had has just exacerbated the, the whole ability to uh, put together development projects that, that pencil out, as they would say, uh, that work on paper. It's, it's even more difficult today.
After so many years of working in Detroit, is there a favorite project that you have? Is something is there something you were particularly pleased to to bring to fruition? Yeah, a couple of projects come to mind. The Detroit School of Arts, which we did um, through the Detroit Public Schools Bond Program some years ago, uh, was one of the largest high schools built. It was um, to be a joint venture between Detroit Public Television and Detroit Public Schools, where there are actually television studios within the school. Um, I think the public radio stations still broadcast from the school, and then um, it's a high-rise high school. Uh, it's won several awards. So I was very pleased when the when the student population left the Murray Wright Votec building, where they were damaging their eardrums, practicing with tubas and so forth in very small spaces. And they were able to occupy the Detroit School of Arts. To see them going into that school building on opening day was, it just, it brings tears to your eyes. I also think about Tabernacle Baptist Church at Grand River and West Grand Boulevard, uh, working with Dr. Sampson before he passed on the design of that. Uh, with colors and so forth, and even the structure of the sanctuary being biblically based uh, was a real real thrill for us as well. Um, and of course, I, I'm still proud of the MGM permanent casino that we, we designed with MGM Resorts. Uh, they're still one of our longest standing clients, and we continue to provide service for him, not only here in Detroit, but at National Harbor, outside of Washington, D.C., and it looks like things may be um, warming up again in Las Vegas for us. So um, those are maybe the top three. And then you mentioned earlier that you've been in your house for about 28 years. Um, I, I think I saw that you used to drive past the house when you were a student and think you wanted to live there someday. Can you tell me a little bit about what it means to, to have achieved that and to be there for so long? Yeah, I'm in the university district, which is, has been um, a wonderful place to live. It, it's a uh, diverse neighborhood. It's a very walkable neighborhood, you know, with mature trees. And um, my home is an English tutor, which is one of my favorite styles as a, as a young architecture student. And um, I've, I've embellished it already by adding uh, central air conditioning. And uh, I've moved the laundry from the, the basement to the second floor, which is much more convenient. God knows how many steps you take going from bedrooms to basement to do laundry every every trip. And by doing so, by moving that wash and dryer to the second floor, it just left more space for the model railroad in the basement. So um, it's, it's, been, it's been a thrill. In fact, uh, this September, we're having our biannual home and garden tour, and I've agreed to have my home be part of that, uh, that tour event on a Sunday in September. So, so look forward to that. Oh, how cool. What's yeah. the model railroad setup look like now? It takes up every room in the basement, and it, it models kind of the area that my parents would drive us through on vacation, like the Smoky Mountains. Um, and it also mimics uh, the town where my father grew up in Mississippi called Batesville, where they had a, a little central square, was their town square with a, uh, the train running through it and stopping. Uh, so that's modeled. And my father was a baseball fan, so I've got a baseball diamond on, on the layout. So it's a, it's a good, um, it's good therapy to, um, to, to get away from the reality of practicing architecture sometimes. Practicing it in miniature in a way. Exactly. Or I'm the client and the designer. How good can that be, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, I wonder, Rainey, um, what's the future of Hamilton Anderson whenever it is that you decide to hang up your hat? Have you started having those discussions, um, sort of like succession plan? Yes, we are. We, we've had those uh, discussions, and obviously I want the practice to continue. 
So I have a, a team of individuals that, in fact, we were just reviewing the org chart going forward. Over the next couple of years, there will be a transition. And um, the, the leadership that is here is just as passionate about our mission uh, than I am. And uh, they're committed to continuing the practice uh, with the unique DNA of architecture and site being the, the primary two disciplines that, that lead the charge in creating all the great design solutions that you see across the city of Detroit. So um, looking forward to scaling back, not this year, maybe the next, but in the very near future. So we are putting those plans in place. That being said, I'd like to do a little bit of reflection with you. What would be, from your perspective, your, your biggest failure in business and how did you overcome it? Oh, the biggest failure in business. I don't think there's any failure in business, right? I mean, every, even the hobby store running that for five years and then close, deciding to close it was still very beneficial. Um, there are those that say, don't turn your hobby into a business. So I, maybe that's the mistake that I made. Um, but um, bad decision? I don't know. Um, pay myself more earlier on? So maybe I could take more time off now, but I think it's all been it's all been good. We were talking a little bit offline about uh, an interaction that you had with Gretchen Whitmer. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I was I was honored when I received a phone call from uh, uh, Miss Whitmer before she was um, elected to be our governor, and I was excited to take the call. And she says, "Rainy, if I'm elected to be your governor, what would you have me to do?" And I said, um, well, excuse my French, Gretchen, just fix the damn roads. And um, she said, that's good. Can I use that? I said, absolutely. I just had no idea that it would stick in the way that it has. But um, I think I have to prompt her to remember that uh, I coined that expression, just fix the damn roads. Are you telling me that there's a politician that stole phrasing from someone? I'm shocked. <laughs> you got to claim your moment of celebrity. Right, right. Have you thought about trademarking it or anything? Uh, it's t too late, isn't it? Oh, fair, fair. fair. <laughs> yeah, it's too late. Public use now. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was thrilled that that she used it, and and to be so bold, a little brash to to actually use that language as part of her slogan. But um, it's true. We just need to fix the damn roads. This is the motor city, uh, motor capital of the world, and we can't build a road correctly, and we can't patch it correctly. It drives us crazy, right? Indeed, and we'll be sure we'll be sure to reach out to uh, Whitmer's team for comment. So. <laughs> <laughs> Keep me posted. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll be sure to let you know if they say anything. Sure, Rainy, we appreciate you being here. And when you're uh, when you're ready to debut your song about model trains, don't hesitate to let us know. And be happy. <laughs> that sounds like a winner. Thanks so much. Thanks again. so much. Yeah, thank you both. Time.